You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. NVIDIA proves that AI can continue powering big gains. Our market guests agrees with that and sees plenty of opportunity for years to come, not just in that stock, but across the waterfront in AI, in the AI ecosystem. Plus, not terrible, but not great either. That's how our housing guest describes the setup for the spring selling season. He's here with what he means by that and what it means for you if you're in the market to buy or sell this spring. And three more names on deck to report, including one our trader says checks all the boxes for a buy. That's ahead in earnings exchange, but we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu with the NVIDIA boosted numbers. Dom. Everything is so green. Everything is so green in the marketplace right now. I mean, well, not everything, but you get the point. Let's not bury the lead. From a macro perspective, we are at record highs for both the Dow Industrial, so we'll put a star right up there right off the bat, and the S&P 500. Again, record highs. And by the way, we are at session highs right now. The Dow Industrial's up 328 points, almost a 1% gain there, 38,941. The S&P 500 is now solidly north of 5,000, 5,074, up 92 points. Uh, this is, again, session highs right now. We were up roughly 57 points at the session lows. So again, a market move higher, up nearly 2%, and a 2 and 3 quarter percent gain for the NASDAQ composite, now north of 16,000, 16,001. We are just about a percent and change away from its own record high for the composite and about a quarter percent away from a record high for the large cap NASDAQ 100. Another spot with a lot of green. Look at the travel and leisure names today. Royal Caribbean out last night upping its annual profit guidance. Again, big deal there. They think that bookings are now, again, stronger now and for all four quarters this year than they were the same time last year. Royal Caribbean's up nearly 7%. But Carnival catching a tailwind there. Norwegian Cruise Lines catching a tailwind there. And Expedia and Booking Holdings among some of those travel and leisure names getting a bid as well. And by the way, keep an eye on Booking Holdings because they report after the closing bell today. And of course, Tyler did mention NVIDIA in that big trade. It is now up nearly 15%. $775, and what that does equate to right now is an almost $1.9991, I think, trillion dollar market valuation just in the last day. Tyler, this stock has gained roughly $246 billion in market cap in one day. Tyler, just to put it in context, that's about just like adding an entire Netflix in market value in one day alone for NVIDIA. I'll send things back over to you. As this uh, stock sits, Dom, on the precipice of $2 trillion in market value, it was not that long ago that it was just $1 trillion, just $1 trillion, so it has doubled uh, very quickly. Dom Chu, thank you very much. Our next guest says that while NVIDIA may be the poster child of the AI boom, it is by far not the only winner in this area. He sees plenty of opportunity for years to come outside of that name. Here with us, Kevin Mon, President and CIO at Henny and Walsh Asset Management. I'm going to talk about NVIDIA in just a minute, but we've got the Dow at 38,000 and change, uh, 38,000, whatever. Is Dow 40,000 next stop here? It may be the next stop, but it may take some time to get there. Some have asked me, are we going to get to S&P 5400? I think we get there by the end of the year, but we're going to see a pullback prior to that. And we're going to need the Fed to step in and start cutting interest rates toward the second half of the year before we see a more broader base rally beyond just the AI names. That and we're at 38,943 on the Dow right now. That's not a big jump to get no, to 40,000. I'm not. not really saying that much. I mean, 1,000 points on, on 38,000 is not, is not that much. So... 
you're comforted, obviously, by NVIDIA's report here. I am. Uh, you think this casts a halo or a nice warm glow across the entire artificial intelligence area. Explain and, and what will be the beneficiaries. Sure. I found it odd that earlier this week some were suggesting that the AI boom was slowing or perhaps the AI race was taking a detour. And what we learned from NVIDIA last night, the poster child for artificial intelligence, if you will, as you said in your opening, is that in fact the AI boom is only accelerating and the AI race is only picking up steam. Now, as we go ahead, I would just caution investors to realize that the AI game isn't just chips and semiconductors. Yes, NVIDIA is getting all the attention right now. But if you look more broadly into the entire AI ecosystem and you consider the software companies, the hardware companies, the data center, and of course, cybersecurity, the glue that holds the technology puzzle together, I think investors will find even more investment opportunities that are probably at better valuations. At what point does this sort of that famous law of large numbers come yes. into play with respect to NVIDIA, where it gets just harder and harder? As, as Dom just pointed out, they have added today the value of, an, of a Netflix to their, to their portfolio here. Uh, at some point, that becomes harder and harder to do. It does, but then you look at what happened from yesterday today and the gains that investors missed out on by being afraid of that valuation or being fearful that their market cap had reached too high. I listened to the press conference yesterday, and what I was actually amazed by is that they have a new generation chip, the B100, that's expected to ship later this year. Mm -hmm. That's only going to add additional revenue and earnings potential, and perhaps these three consecutive quarters of earnings beats, significant earnings beats, is going to extend to four, five, maybe even six consecutive quarters. So don't try and time the market. Don't be wary of stocks just because of their market caps. But again, consider a more diversified approach, not just one. Are there, you, you mentioned some of the areas, the software companies, the yes. data centers, the, uh, the, the cloud, secure, cloud companies, security companies. Yep. Are there names in that, in that ecosystem that are attractive to you right now? Certainly. If I consider the hardware companies, if you will, look at names like even Tesla, which has come back significantly mm. this year. Apple, which again, has fallen out of the magnificent seven, if you will. But the those are not, you, you consider those AI companies? I consider them deployers of AI mm. in the hardware space. Mm -hmm. Remember, the mm -hmm. ecosystem isn't just the chips and the semiconductors, but then you look at the data centers. Who's going to amass all this data and process all this data? Well, we know NVIDIA has a big and growing data yes. center business, but how about other companies like Digital Realty, for example? And then on the software side, I still believe, Tyler, Microsoft's going to be the ultimate winner in the AI race. But there's going to be more than one winner. And there's other software companies, even smaller cap one, that are going to use and deploy AI and actually grow their revenues, right. too. To stick around, Kevin. We're going to continue our conversation. We're going to pivot a little bit. Uh, while the market has been banking on rate cuts coming soon, it seems now, uh, based on the minutes of yesterday's Fed meet, of, of the, the minutes came out yesterday of the Fed meeting a couple weeks ago, uh, that uh, the Fed is now united on keeping rates higher for longer. Steve Leisman is here to explain. Hi, Steve. Hey, Tyler, yeah, the outlook for rate cuts this year continues to sink today after the Fed vice chair suggested that the central bank may deliver, tep may deliver tepid easing at best. Fed vice chair Phil Jefferson saying it's likely appropriate to reduce the restraint later this year. Policy, he says, is well into restrictive territory. But then he praised the 1995 easing cycle, and I want to tell you what that may mean. Jefferson quoted his predecessor from the 1990s, Alan Blinder, who described in a Wall Street Journal op-ed this week the 1995 episode as the perfect soft landing. Well, what happened then? The Fed that year did only modest easing, a single quarter point cut, 
followed five months later by two more quarter point cuts and then remaining on hold for 14 months. Next move was actually a hike. Jefferson didn't explicitly say that's the model, but he made positive comments about it, suggesting he's at least thinking about a very tentative easing cycle, at least to start. He also mentioned these risks, consumer spending, proving more resilient, employment weakening, so there is some downside concern, and geopolitical risks remaining elevated. Together with those minutes we got yesterday, um, Jefferson's comments and that of other Fed officials just little dovish sentiment on this committee and remarkable unity around later and more cautious rate cuts, Tyler. Did, did those minutes surprise you, Steve? Yeah, I thought there was, look, I kind of take my cue from what's happening on Wall Street. Wall Street, there's a debate. There's got people who think the Fed ought to remain tighter for longer. And there's folks who say the Fed should be easing and easing right now. That's fine. I didn't see that in the minutes. Very, very few dovish comments. Very little discussion, it seemed to me, uh, of the risk of recession. I think uh, what Kevin was saying is interesting, that his outlook depends on those rate cuts happening. And I just wonder the extent to which economic growth depends on those rate cuts happening sooner rather than later. I think there is concern on the, the, the risks are both sided. The Fed says risks are balanced, Tyler, but they sure don't act that way. Well, why don't we see what uh, Kevin says in, in response to what you just uh, raised there? Thank you, Steve, very much, Steve Leisman. Uh, so, so what do you say to what Steve just pointed out? Yeah, Steve makes a very good point. The, threat, the Fed is trying to thread a needle here, right? But there is some precedent if you look back to the mid-1970s. The last time the Fed started cutting interest rate prior to the inflation target getting back closer to 2%. And what happened back then? Well, interest inflation returned, mm -hmm. double-digit inflation. Paul Volcker had to step in, raise interest rates dramatically, inflation hitting as high dead. as 20%, it wasn't killed dead. inflation, but also brought on a recession. So the Fed is trying to weigh against not cutting rates too soon, but not keeping rates too high for too long to induce a recession. As it stands right now, to Steve's point, the Fed is forecasting economic growth to slow to 1.4% this year. The stock They're market has been very in. comfortable. Yes. Uh, with the idea that, hey, it's really nice to think about when interest rate cuts might happen. Yes. We, we can live with the idea that they're going to cut. They're going to cut. It's just a question of when. It's like, yeah, they're going to cut. But, but then when they do, yes. my question is, <laughs> is that the moment where the party's <laughs> over? Because then you've got, you've got the prize yes. of the rate cuts. And is that the moment where everybody goes, well, now... Mm. <laughs> yeah. We think back to November of last year, right, when the market became comfortable that we reached the end of this rate hike cycle. We saw municipal bonds have their best month since 1986. Stocks rallied nearly 10 percent in that month. I think we'll get that type of euphoria with the first rate cut, but that's just one of many to come. The Fed is forecasting nearly 250 basis points in cuts over the next three years. It's going to take the full magnitude of all of those cuts to really spur economic growth and really lift the rest of the stocks beyond just the Magnificent Seven to rally in a similar fashion. Does, does the current economic environment argue for a kind of classic portfolio allocation of 60 stocks, 40 bonds. I, I believe it does. And I know that's an arbitrary asset allocation. 60-40 may not be appropriate for everyone, perhaps 70-30. But if you think about the outlook for rates coming down, who benefits the most from rates coming bonds. down? Bonds and the stocks that haven't fully recovered just yet. Mm -hmm. And we saw that take place in November of last year when the 60-40 had their best month since January of 1991. Better days are ahead for both stocks and bonds and that types of balanced approach once the Fed starts cutting. But remember, even if the Fed does cut three times this year by 75 basis points, as their dot plot chart suggests, 
interest rates will still be at a 17-year high. If, I, if I'm interested in bulking up the, the portion of my portfolio that is in bonds, yes. where do I do that? I think you lean into the investment-grade area of the market with this forecast that economic slowdown ahead of us, which could and potentially lead into so a recessionary period. Don't, don't, okay. Not how you don't look at municipal bonds, look at investment-grade corporate bonds, and look at investment-grade preferred securities as well, Tyler, that are still trading at significant discounts. All right, Kevin, thank you very much. Great My to pleasure. be with you. Kevin Mond. Thanks, Tyler. All right, coming up, we've got uh, every angle, every angle of real estate covered from the latest home sales numbers to the outlook for the spring selling season. And then we'll talk to the owner of the iconic Empire State Building for his read on commercial real estate in Manhattan. It might surprise you what it is. Plus, NVIDIA earnings may be in the market's rearview mirror, at least for now. But there's still plenty of other names on deck with results. And we've got the action, the story, and the trade on Live Nation, Block, and Warner Brothers Discovery ahead in the earnings exchange. Before we head to break, check out shares of Baidu, noted short seller Citron Research, taking a positive stance and posting on X that shares should trade to 210, nearly double where they are now, and that Baidu remains, quote, the most underappreciated name in AI. Shares are up about 3% on that. We are back after this break. How about that? This is The Exchange on CNBC. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Mortgage rates began the year below 7%, and that helped get some buyers back into the market. Diana Olick has the details. Hi, Di. Hey, Ty. Yeah, we saw it in the January sales numbers that we got out this morning from the realtors. Sales of existing homes rose just over 3% in January from, from December, still down 1.7% year over year, but it was the highest sales pace since August of last year. Now, this count is based on closing, so it's contracts that were likely signed in November and December, and that's when mortgage rates dropped down off that 8% October high and hit a low of 6.6% by mid-December. Today, of course, they're back over 7%. Now, inventory in January did go up, up just over 3% year over year, but still at a low three-month supply. Six months is considered balance between a buyer and a seller. And that's why we're still seeing pressure on home prices. The median existing home price in January was $379,100. That is up just over 5% from one year ago. And that is an all-time high for the month of January. But to me, here's the headline of the report. We saw a major jump in all cash sales to 32%. That's up from 29% in both December and a year ago. It's usually around 20%. And that is the highest cash share in a decade. Interesting because the share of investors, and these are folks who usually use cash, that didn't change much. So these are regular buyers using cash. I spoke to an agent at Compass this morning who told me that both buyers and sellers are having to get more creative in this higher rate environment. Buyers need to find that cash while some sellers are now offering incentives like buying down the mortgage rates to get the home sold, but that might keep some sellers away from the market, Tyler. How is all this affecting affordability and first-time buyers? Well, it's rough out there, no question. We actually saw the share of first-time buyers drop back well below 30%. They should be around 40%. That's a historical share of first-timers, but they can't get into this market. And then when you see that high share of all cash, well, first-time buyers don't generally have cash. They are very mortgage-dependent. And so unless they're borrowing from their parents and they can pay it back or they're getting some kind of rate buy-down, 
they're just not going to be able to crack into this market. And that's why we continue to see more of this renter nation, a lot of demand for rentals. Rents are coming down a little bit, but that's only because we're seeing so much new supply come on the market. It's not so much the demand side. And we will continue to see that demand from renters move higher uh, as affordability just sits where it is. All right, Diana Olick, thank you very much. All right, despite the rise in existing home sales, our next guest believes the spring selling season will be very mixed. Not terrible, not great. Uh, and he says the jump in mortgage rates back above 7% has come at an inopportune time. Joining us now is Ryan McKevney. He's managing director at Zellman & Associates. Ryan, welcome. Good to have you here. Why is this an inopportune time for rates to be moving in the direction they're moving? Is it simply because, well, you don't want that at the start of a spring buying season? Yeah, thank you, Tyler. It's uh, it's nice to be here. That's that's exactly the point. The the movements in mortgage mortgage rates uh, do matter a lot. Um, I think your colleague Diana framed things nicely, which was uh, the January existing home sale data that came out today. Uh, it was a good number. It was up from December. It was the best since August. When we look at the go forward uh, trends, when we see what's happening real time, whether it's some of the survey work we do, uh, whether it's the data we we analyze. We have seen a bit of a slowdown in pending contracts in the month of January and into February. So while that headline for January was quite good, we do expect a bit of fading as we go into February and March. And at the end of the day, movements in mortgage rates going from six and a half now up above seven, as you referenced, it does matter. And it's going to matter for that monthly cadence yeah. of transactions. Because the, to, to just pinpoint it here, because the January numbers were based on closings that took place in that month on transactions that were probably initiated when mortgages had come off the boil a little bit, right? That's exactly right. Mortgage rates uh, hit up close to 8% in October, uh, dropped down to about 6.5% in December. And that's when we saw the big push. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw a really nice pending home sale activity in December. That's what flowed through into the home sale number today. But again, <clears throat> as we moved into January and, and even more so in February, mortgage rates have moved back up. That has corresponded with a bit of a fading. And, and I would say one month doesn't make a trend. You know, we, we do want to see that momentum building into the spring selling season. It's when the most activity happens. Um, but at the same time, if we have mortgage rates peak out here and move lower, we do think eventually that occurs. It's very dependent on the Fed, very dependent on inflation. Our view today is existing home sales for the full year of 24 will be up a few percent from 23. So moving in the right direction, not a V-shaped snapback, at least not this year. Um, but we likely have hit the trough in, in the latter part of 2023. Are you surprised at all that prices have continued to go up? Even in the face of high interest rates, I suppose the reason for that is that is that inventory is still relatively low. So if you don't have supply, uh, that creates a floor under prices and maybe makes them go up. But but the basic question is, you might expect with high or rising interest rates that prices would be much more restrained than they are. And they have continued to be show basically pretty healthy gains. Yeah, Tyler, I would say in 2023, one of the strongest points of upside to, to all of the housing metrics we forecast um, was, in fact, home prices. Um, it is the dynamic you referenced. We've seen uh, very low levels of transactions. 
but we've also seen very constrained inventory levels. So you haven't seen the, the large mismatch between demand relative to that supply. Um, and that has fueled ongoing strength in pricing. As Diana mentioned, affordability is very stretched. Um, you have to go quite a ways back to see this level of, of affordability um, in a bad way, unfortunately. Um, but price continues to move higher. As we think about things going forward, we do see inventory slowly starting to pick up. Um, this month, it was up 3% year over year. We think it continues to build through the year. Eventually, all the buyers out there have a bit more to choose from. We think eventually that helps uh, lessen the rate of price growth eventually. Um, but in the moment today, prices remain strong and continue to move up. Are there any anomalies uh, in the housing market region by region that you can you can point us to? In other words, is South Florida still blazing hot uh, and uh, the upper Midwest still cool or vice versa, whatever? I, I would say that there are a lot of market by market differences, even within South Florida. Some areas remain hot. Um, some have cooled down a bit. Um, I would say most recently, the checks we've done around the country, the areas that stood out most positive to me um, were on the West Coast. Um, Seattle, very strong. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bay Area, very strong. I actually heard a guest of yours, um, the CEO of Compass, make a similar point today, and that's exactly what we're seeing as well. Um, so areas of strength uh, for the moment appear to be shifting out uh, to the West Coast. Very interesting. Ryan, thank you very much. Have a good year. We'll be talking to you throughout it, I'm sure. Ryan McKevney with Zellman and Associates. All right, let's switch to commercial real estate now. And according to the latest data from Castle, office occupancy levels came in at just over 50% last week, and it was even lower in the New York City metro area at 43%. But our next guest says that's not the case at his properties. His company just delivered its eighth consecutive quarter of increased leasing numbers, with its Manhattan offices almost 90% occupied. Joining us now for an exclusive interview is Tony Malkin, chairman and CEO of Empire State Realty Trust, owners of the Empire State Building. Tony, welcome. Good to have you with us. How are you beating the market here with an occupancy rate pressing in on 90% in your properties when the broader numbers are much, much lower in the New York market and nationally for office properties? Well, Tyler, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, look, we've got continued demand, at least nearly a million square feet in 2023. And I think what we've proved quarter after quarter is that it's the flight to quality. Uh, and, and it's flight to quality, by the way, in property and balance sheet, amenities, locations. Uh, we did the work and invested over a billion dollars in portfolio upgrades with modernization, amenitization, energy efficiency, indoor and vinyl quality to make our properties future ready. And the results are, as you mentioned, very strong. You know, Empire State Building, our least percentage increased 720 basis points year over year. Uh, 1359 Broadway, 730 basis points year over year. So it's about top of tier, it's about in your price point, and it's about delivering a product and a confidence for the people who want to bring their folks back to the office. Are these commercial properties that you have? I was looking at a list of your properties or the biggest, the biggest ones in New York. It was very interesting, actually, because it was not just office. LinkedIn was your, is your biggest tenant. Am I right on that? LinkedIn is our largest tenant. And you're right, it's not just office. Yeah. We have four different drivers in our, in our portfolio. Office is only 60% of net operating income. Uh, the observatory is next at 25%. Retail is about 10%, and residential, into which we've begun to go, uh, is at 5%. So, look, we're a New York City play, a pure New York City play. Uh, and then at the same time, you've got four different drivers 
very well capitalized, great balance sheet, modernized and amenitized. And, and, and the fact is, the tenants like us for all the things that we bring, and investors have shown they like us a lot as well. You know, I, I'm guessing, I don't know whether this is true or not, that if we turn back the clock to this time in 2020, or maybe March, April of 2020, the, the, the peak of the, of the uh, pandemic, that you might have been quite nervous about office properties. Were you then, and have you been surprised that your properties and the office market in New York has held up as well as it has? Well, you know, it's funny because you have some tape on CNBC of me from back in that time uh, and a little time after. And, uh, you know, my view has been uh, very much uh, positive. Uh, New mm -hmm. York City uh, is, is an international world capital, number one. Number two, you can't rely on those castle numbers. Uh, only a few of our buildings even use castle. Uh, the data to me that they produce is not really all that relevant. Uh, what we see uh, is that collaboration to be in the workplace. Uh, if you look at our tenants and their own comments about what we do uh, and what they do and how that fits together, uh, they want good collaborative spaces for their folks to come back to work. And uh, we have tenants who actually are, expand with us. Uh, over 2.6 million square feet of expansions since we went public. And post-pandemic, a major component of what those expansions have been is tenants who have said, you know, our people in your buildings show up at a greater percentage than our people in other locations. We want to consolidate and take more space with you. Yeah, very interesting. I am intrigued, uh, fascinated by the enduring appeal of the Empire State Building and its observatory. You had revenues there that grew, if I'm correct, something like 13%, something. It was, it was amazing year over year. So our observatory is back to pre-COVID levels as far as, as, as net operating income. Tourism continues to improve. We have built exceptional brand awareness. According to TripAdvisor, we're the number one destination attraction uh, in the United States for two years running now. And it is about that iconic brand. It's also about how we work the brand. It's also about how we get the word out there. We had 422 billion media impressions in 2023, nearly $800 million of advertising value equivalency. And that's with brand partnerships we do, celebrity visits, uh, the way we do our light shows. And, uh, and, and we've gone to a reservations only model and that has created better cost control from our perspective. We know when people will show up. It's also gotten rid of the lines and mm -hmm. it's created a much better experience for people. So we actually poll number one amongst all the different destination attraction observatories uh, in, in New York City. Our brand awareness is second to Disneyland. So it's, it's really quite an impressive brand. Yeah, really, really something. Tony, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Tony, Tony Malkin, thank you. All right, coming up, we have got the read on real estate, but how is Main Street feeling about the economy? The results of CNBC's latest small business survey might surprise you. That's ahead. Stay with us. Dow up 378. There is the Dow, uh, really near session highs. It 
briefly dipped over 39,000 uh, for the first time ever uh, just moments ago. There you see it right on the doorstep. There it is, 39,000. I asked for it and it delivered right there. It knows. It knows what to do when Tyler's talking to you. Let's go to Kate Rogers now for a CNBC News update. How'd you like that, Kate? I said 39,000 and there Tyler. it went. Absolutely incredible. Good to see you. The medical report on Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's cause of death was listed as, quote, natural. That's according to a spokesperson for the Navalny family who said his mother relayed the information. In a message on YouTube, Navalny's mother also said that she was, quote, secretly taken to the morgue to see her son's body and was being blackmailed by the Russian government to have a secret funeral for him. The U.S. Supreme Court has allowed a $2.4 billion settlement between the Boy Scouts of America and victims of sex abuse to move forward. The decision lifted a temporary pause set by Justice Samuel Alito last week that froze the settlement to give the court time to consider a request from abuse victims. And a massive container ship crashed, crashed rather, into a bridge south of the Chinese city Guangzhou early today, causing a part of the bridge to fall into the river, leaving two people dead and others missing, while two people have been rescued. Authorities are looking into the cause of that crash. Tyler, back over to you. Wow, that's amazing. Kate Rogers, thank you. Coming up, thank we're going to talk live entertainment, fintech, and big media in the earnings exchange. The numbers and narratives to know ahead of Live Nation, Block, and Warner Brothers Discovery's results. And during February, we celebrate Black Heritage. And here is JetBlue, Corporate VP of Social Responsibility and DEI, Isama Gibbs, sharing her story. Our contributions to the world are significant. And you don't know where you're going unless you can look back and see where you come from. And so celebrating Black History Month allows everybody to understand, celebrate, and recognize the rich contributions that African Americans have made in the United States, but that black people in general have made to the world. Welcome back. Earnings season continues, and we've got content, concerts, and cash on the docket right now. We're going to look at Warner Brothers Discovery, Live Nation, and Block in today's earnings exchange. And here with our trades, Quint Tatro, Jewel Financial founder and president. Uh, Quint, welcome. Let's start off with Warner Brothers Discovery. Those shares down nearly 40% over the past year. Deutsche Bank watching content on both the big and small screens as the company looks to grow max subscribers and cash in at the box office with Dune. Part 2 and Joker 2. The Street also listening for any details on the launch of its sports streaming venture with Fox and ESPN. But you, Quint, are not impressed here. You're a seller. Why? Yeah, good to see you, Tyler. Thanks for having me back. This one is tough. It's, it looks trap-like. I mean, on all accounts, this would be normally an attractive stock to us. It's trading 0.5 book. 0.5 sales. They're looking to return to profitability with $2 billion in cash. But the reality is the price action stinks. I mean, it just can't seem to get out of its own way. And so I think as an investor, you can identify the fundamentals. They might be attractive here, but you've got to wait for a catalyst. The street's expecting a loss of about 11 cents on 10 billion in revenue. I mean, if they have an upside surprise and the stock starts to turn around, there's no rush. And then you can go back in and, and take a position. But ahead of these earnings, I would not touch this name. Price action is terrible. Is the sports app that they're trying to, to generate here with Fox uh, and uh, others, is that a game changer for them or do you think not? 
It could be all the above, even Dune. I mean, I love a good movie, right? So all of this, and, and you look at this and you look at the fundos and you say, why is this stock trading where mm -hmm. it is? And so something must be going. I always will respect the price action. So I, I have to do that. So at this stage, again, I, I don't know what seems to be wrong with the stock, but something's up. Uh, and it's not the stock, so I uh, wouldn't yeah. touch it here. <laughs> or something's around. down, and that would be the <laughs> yeah. stock. All right, Live Nation shares of that ticketing and events platform up 20% over the past year. Oppenheimer keeping an eye on event demand, growth in its venue, ownership business, and the results of the ongoing DOJ probe into potentially anti-competitive practices with Live Nation. Quint, what would you do here? Yeah, you threw out some, some good ones today, Tyler. Live Nation is interesting. I, I can wear two hats with this one. In, in the investor camp, I, I can't touch it. Six billion in debt, a hangover from, from COVID. It, it's just not for me. But it looks interesting for a trade. The stock's trading about 40 times forward earnings, but those earnings are growing at about 36, 37%. But here's the kicker. If this thing catches a spark, it's got about 10% of the float short. I think if you want to wear your trading hat here, you could get long this name with a stop at 87. But as far as an investment for me, I have to be a debt guy and it has just too much debt on the balance sheet. All right, we should point out that we've got an exclusive interview with Live Nation CEO right here on the exchange tomorrow. That's at 1 o'clock. Michael Rapino will join us. Finally, let's move on to Block. Shares there down 7% in a tough year that included a two-day outage and a scathing short seller report. Jeffrey's hoping its seller and buy now, pay later services can offset weaknesses in the cash app. Quint, what's your trade here on Block? They've got a lot of cash. Yeah, this one I like, Tyler. I'd be a buy on this name. It, it sort of checks all the boxes for us. So we have little to no debt, $6 billion in cash. Their forward estimates, uh, if they hit them, it, it trades at a multiple of about 21. And that would be about 60% in growth. And ultimately, it's an unloved stock. And in this environment, it's hard to find stocks that have attractive fundos, they're set up well, and, and they're not already run. And this one is kind of checking all those boxes. Uh, so I like this name. It's it's the buy on our list today. I want to get your reaction to the Dow crossing 39,000 for the first time, 40,000 in its sights, up a thousand points in 31 days. Happy? It's fantastic, yeah. right? I mean, we, we work with retail investors every day. They speak Dow uh, even though we all care about the S&P, they, they speak Dow. And I think when it crosses 40,000, they're going to they're going to take notice. In my opinion, still the most hated bull market I've seen in a very, very long time. Seven trillion on the sidelines in money market. People are just super scared of, of chasing uh, the indices. But what they got to do is look under the hood. Small caps, emergings, other interest rate sensitive areas are not as stretched as the mag seven. So this this market, if we get a subtle downtick in rates, the other areas could take off, and that's what we like here. The opportunity for this bull to spread its wings to other areas and keep going. All right, Quint, thank you. Appreciate it. Quint Tetro, Jewel Financial. Coming up, the Fed expressing both optimism and caution on inflation at its last meeting, but our late, latest survey shows Main Street has already broken out the rose-colored glasses. We'll dig into those findings next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. CNBC and SurveyMonkey out with the latest reading on Main Street sentiment for the first quarter of the year, and things are looking up. Kate Rogers has more. Hey, Kate. Hi again, Tyler. Our Small Business Confidence Index shows owners are feeling more optimistic with confidence hitting 47 out of 100. That's up one point from last quarter, also just below the all-time high hit back in Q4 of 2020. It's also the highest reading since Biden took office. We surveyed more than 3,000 small business owners for this poll. The number of owners who described the economy as excellent or good also hit its highest level since we began asking that question two years ago at 28 percent. That's up 10 percentage points year on year. Inflation, though, still a stubborn issue for owners. Nearly a third of owners say it's currently their biggest risk to business. That's more than double the amount who cite consumer demand, interest rates, labor shortages and supply chain disruptions as key issues. It's also going to matter, of course, as we head into the election. Sixty percent of small business owners said inflation and interest rates were their top issues when deciding who to vote for in November, tied with economic growth. 50% Tyler said they'd focus on tax policy when choosing a candidate. Back over to you. All right. It's an election year, Kate, as you may have noticed. Uh, how do <laughs> owners view the president's uh, performance uh, as a steward of the economy? It's so interesting. So about 33% say that they do approve of the job that President Biden is doing. That's slightly higher than we've seen in the past, but two-thirds say that they disapprove. Uh, and it's just kind of fascinating as we're watching this positive economic data coming out, but President Biden not necessarily getting credit for it, at least amongst the Main Street crowd. So we'll certainly be watching that as we head toward right. November. Kate, thank you very much. Coming up, shares of this financial services company climbing nearly 13% over the past year. It's the mystery chart. Um, but it's underperforming its peers. The street worried uh, new late fee rules are going to take a chunk out of revenues. But Deutsche Bank says the market is underestimating the potential offsets. We'll explore that next. As we close in on the top of the hour, let's get a check on the markets. It has been an eventful hour. The Dow and the S&P are at record highs right now. The Dow over 39,000 for the first time ever. And NASDAQ, it is having its best day in more than a year. As you see it up nearly 3%, the 10-year note at 4.32 with yield moving up. But there are the industrials up 1%, 39.14 is the number there. Shares of Synchrony Financial, that was our mystery chart, up nearly 13% over the past year. But underperforming the likes of Capital One, Visa, and MasterCard. Deutsche Bank attributes that to concerns over the CFPB's impending changes to credit card late fee rules. But says investors are overstating the long-term impact those would have on Synchrony's revenues, making the case for a 45% potential upside. Mark DeVries is a research analyst at Deutsche Bank. Mark, welcome. Good to have you here. Why the... Yeah, good to be here. Good, good, to, good to see you. Um, this this uh, proposed rules that would limit uh, late fees goes back to when and, and what would it precisely do? Yeah, so the, the, the proposal came out of the CFPB um, early February of last year. And, and what they're seeking to do, among other things, you know, the, the headline is effectively drop the maximum late fee that a credit card issuer can charge per billing cycle from $41 to $8. Um, and, and they suggest, um, just given the averages, that that'll reduce um, total late fees charged by the industry from $12 billion to, to $9 million a year. Um, you know, and this has 
disparate impacts on the credit card issuers depending on the nature of, of their, their card business, but Synchrony as a private label credit card issuer is one of the more affected with roughly 15% of their revenues um, coming from late fee income, which is why it's become, um, of all the credit card issuers, the one that has been most impacted um, by, by this proposed rule. So these are material numbers for the likes of Synchrony and others uh, in their credit card business. Let me ask a, a, a kind of philosophical question here. I'm curious why the government should get into price setting like this, because that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I think it's part of a broader initiative um, by the Biden administration to to eliminate what they they consider junk fees um, in uh, in in the credit card industry, and and this is one of the last remaining substantial fees um, that, that are charged to, to consumers. You know, I think from a devil's advocate perspective, it plays a very important role of trying to to keep um, you know consumers current. But the CFPB has taken a very, you know, different rule, and I think their intent here is is to get the the fee um, cut as much as possible to mm -hmm. to match what the cost is yeah. to these credit card. Yeah, issues I mean, I mean, forty one dollars for a late fee does feel a little steep to me if you're two days late with your with your charge because you forgot it. Usually, if you call the card company and you appeal that, they will often say, "Okay, we'll waive it. We'll put it back. Just don't do it again." They slap your wrist, but uh, but. But cutting it, I mean, for the government to say, okay, you got to cut it to $8, I don't know, uh, that seems a little, I don't know, it just seems a little curious to me. Now, let's talk about some of the countervailing things that should these rules mm -hmm. go into effect that the credit card companies can do to blunt the impact. Sure, sure. Um, well, one thing that Synchrony has at their disposal, which a lot of issuers don't, is they have contractual agreements with their retail partners. Almost all of their lending is done as a partner to retailers like um, like Amazon, Lowe's, um, and others, is they share economics. So half of the lost fees will actually be borne by the retailer. But then there are other things that they can seek to do outside of that, I think, that will offset that. Um, a couple of them are more near-term and have a more immediate impact. One of the things that they may do is actually um, add fees for paper billing statements for people who choose not to just receive digital notification. And I think that's something we can expect them to do um, they can also, you know, they provide promotional financing on some of their lending. They may look to increase the rate on that. Um, and also they, they they could consider what's called trailing interest, um, charging people for the period between the, their due date um, or the end of the billing cycle and their, and their due date. Um, but the bigger longer term, you know, solution is going to be ultimately for the borrowers who are most at risk of, of being delinquent and, and incurring these is increasing the APR. In other words, the rate that you pay on your revolving balances. And, and I think that is what, at the end of the day, is going to get synchrony most of the way back to recovering all mm -hmm. the revenue they stand to lose from the reduction in the late fee. In your coverage universe, which stocks do you mm -hmm. like the best right here uh, today? And, and I'd love yeah. to get your thoughts on the deal between uh, Discover uh, and Capital One. Yeah, I, you know, Synchrony um, and Amex are the two that we're recommending for very different reasons. Synchrony is is because of this, our view that the market is underestimating their offsets and that, you know, once it becomes clear to the market that um, they're going to, you know, in the next couple of years, be able to fully offset it, that the multiple will re-rate back to levels that are consistent where it's traded longer term. And that's why you get so much upside to to our price target. Amex is a very different story. It's just a, a very high quality issuer at a still relatively uncertain 
time in the cycle where you're seeing credit at a number of issuers like Capital One Discover and even Synchrony um, deteriorating despite relatively low unemployment. And, and, and Capital One and Discover, what, yep. t- tell me a quick oh. thought on that. 30 yeah, seconds. so we're we're, we're, we're a, a hold on both of those, mm-hmm. um, you know, in part because we think there's the, the market is telling us that there's a high probability this deal does not get approved. Right. Right. So we see risk to discover trading back down to where it was prior to the deal. But also, we you know, for for Capital One, there's going to be very limited accretion from a gap perspective for the next several right. years. And so okay. we think even if the deal gets approved, it takes time for that one to work. Got to leave it there. Mark DeVries, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And that'll do it for The Exchange. I'll be back with you on Power Lunch on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.